The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The reporter continued, At the time, I was listening to people in the police department that I respected and trusted. And unfortunately, that was the path I took. I should have listened to my mother. Brennan's stories became a successful and unfortunate part of the deliberate and incorrect leaks agenda begun by the Boulder Police and the District Attorney's Office to influence the media and public that Patsy and John killed their daughter. The plan began with incorrect information released in the police news conference on December 30, 1996. From Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey case 25 years later by Paula Woodward. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club Podcast, Episode 39, Second Cast, Crime of the Century. On Unsolved, the John Benny Ramsey case 25 years later, I am your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. Each month, I will discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes and present the story from the author's point of view. This episode is the third of the series called Second Cast because I cast it in a different light and I cast a wider net as well, adding analysis and updates to the case. Please make sure you have listened to episode 37 and 38 on Unsolved before you listen to this episode, The Crime of the Century. It will make a lot more sense that way. All right, in episode 37-38, I explained how Paula Woodward shatters the myths many believe about the Ramsey case. We saw Boulder PD, plagued by confirmation bias and groupthink, rejecting inconvenient evidence, and feeding the media a narrative that it was the Ramseys who killed John Binet. In 1998-1999, this led to a grand jury hearing, which brought charges But the newly installed, less biased DA team realized they couldn't win a prosecution of the Ramseys and did not go forth, with much criticism after all the negative and false publicity. Paula writes that early in 2021, former Rocky Mountain News reporter Charlie Brennan, who I mentioned in the opening, invited John Andrew Ramsey, John Benet's half-brother, to breakfast. John Andrew knew that Brennan had written four exclusive stories early in the Ramsey case, all proving to be false, and they were never retracted. This inaccurate information was recycled by other media, reprinted time and time again during those first months and years after John Benet's death. These four stories were, one, that John Ramsey piloted the family plane to John Benet's funeral in Georgia, false, two, The ransom demand equaled the bonus of the dead girl's dad. That was the headline. Wow. No sensitivity chip there, Charlie. Although this is the closest to being accurate, 
Three, no footprints in the snow caused the police to suspect the Ramses. Of course, there was no snow to leave footprints in. And four, the handwriting on the ransom note points to Patsy Ramsey, contradicting six handwriting experts. All of this was wrong, and it did not line up with the police evidence. Charlie Brennan admitted to John Andrew that he'd not contacted anyone from the Ramsey camp to confirm the accuracy of his stories. Quite the admission. But why would John Andrew agree to meet with someone who'd caused his family such pain? He explained to Paula, quote, I willingly accepted because I wanted to speak with all sorts of people. My hope is that knowledgeable people can help out. What I said to this reporter and others is that I feel like we're all veterans of the same war. We all want the same thing to happen. Find the killer, get to the bottom of this. Hopefully he can help, end quote. Very admirable goal. A newspaper editor also told Paula Woodward that in the initial weeks after John Binet's murder and from confidential discussions with the Polder DA, Alex Hunter, the Denver Post had put a lot of resources into a special edition on the Ramsey case. Some of you may not remember daily newspapers, which predates the online news. A paper boy would deliver the paper to subscribers' homes every day. A special edition is a whole additional newspaper printed beyond the normal daily paper. So this is a huge deal. It is a big expenditure of resources, expensive to do. You need new headlines, new stories to change the type, set the paper, all the people working on it. This Denver special edition headline, quote, John Ramsey is arrested, end quote. The district attorney told this editor that they were only days away, maybe hours, from arresting John Ramsey for murdering John Binet. Only, it never happened. They didn't have the evidence. No surprise to us, because we know they don't have the evidence. The speculation, rumors, innuendos, leaks, this is completely outrageous murder bookies, and it ruined the lives of the Ramseys who had enough to deal with, with Beth's death, John Binet's death, and then Patsy's death from ovarian cancer. But who was behind the leaks? This we know for certain. Boulder Police Department Sergeant Larry Mason was investigated for leaks. Years later, former Boulder detective Stephen Thomas met with author Larry Schiller, who wrote the Ramsey book, Perfect Murder, Perfect Town. Mason told Schiller that he was the daily camera's source. But Mason wasn't alone. So possibly an FBI agent, although they weren't involved in the case after John Benet's body was found. The FBI only investigates kidnapping since the Lindbergh case in 1932. Another possibility is the psychiatrist who befriended Boulder DA Alex Hunter and managed the, quote, incest campaign against John Ramsey. By the way, that was ruled out by the three medical doctors who examined John Benet's body during autopsy which included her family pediatrician. On this subject, paraphrasing John Andrew, he believes the people in Boulder, including law enforcement, just wanted her murder to go away. He said, look at the Boulder brand, health, exercise, rock climbing, bike riding, living in a bubble that life is great. Definitely not sexually assaulting and murdering little girls. That does not fit at all with the narrative. And this is some nasty publicity that is ruining the brand. Enter social media. 
Sadly, to this day, we have a sharp divide between the Ramseys killed their child versus an intruder did it, appearing all over social media. When John Ramsey was announced as a speaker at CrimeCon Vegas in April 2022, there were some groans and distress by true crimers. How awkward would it be that he was speaking? Oh, I know that Patsy did it. All right, I saw these comments, and let's be honest, it's only awkward because good, decent, caring, compassionate true crime people have listened, read, and discussed these deceitful media reports for 25 years. Many of them have no idea the Ramseys were exonerated in 2008 by DNA evidence. We, the public, believe every headline, and we rehash what we read. And those stories, even though they're false, were not retracted. CrimeCon is this week, and I'll definitely be updating the story after I see John Ramsey and I speak with Paula Woodward. So subscribe so you do not miss a thing. In her research, Paula Woodward found 22 Facebook groups dedicated to the Ramsey case, with 26,000 people involved. Some sites are dedicated to one theory alone, and some are open to all opinions. Topics under discussion are diverse and thoughtful. Reddit has 40,000 members in a closed site on this. Instagram has six sites with more than 16,000 active participants. YouTube lists numerous videos and documentaries posted over 25 years. Ian Greenwood, a PhD candidate at Colorado State, whose PhD dissertation research is on international comparative unresolved homicide patterns, told Paula that he, quote, is surprised it isn't double or triple that given the 25-year overall media presence that the Ramsey case had. There's an emergence of podcasts and other social media platforms. There are substantial increases in true crime, especially cold cases, end quote. And here I am, murder bookies. I am part of what Ian Greenwood is confirming. Although I try to root myself in the evidence before the theory approach, and accuracy, I really strive to meet that goal. Greenwood comments on the fascination with the Ramsey case, too. Quote, the problem with the way this case was reported, how it was reported in the media, the contradictions that were originally laid out in the case created space for the kind of thought that, hey, I have an opinion on what the answer is. And that's what caused the increase in these social media forums, end quote. People became actively engaged in the case, the mystique surrounding it, and wanted to help, help solve the case. And maybe discussing something can unlock a new idea that could root out the killer. I have done this with the best of intentions. Many on social media have done this as well. As of June 2021, when Unsolved was published, two new documentaries on John Benet's murder were out, one on Discovery Plus, John Benet Ramsey, What Really Happened, and the other aired on 2020, John Benet Ramsey, The List. Now, after all this, do we believe we know who John Benet was as a little six-year-old girl? I don't think I knew much about her beyond participation in the child beauty pageants. And after 25 years, that is not saying a lot. So let me tell you a little bit about John Benet. She was a charismatic person who lit up a room when she entered. Patsy called her their spark plug. But it's not just her beauty. She was a buoyant, upbeat, kind little girl. Unusually self-assured, she was intelligent and all about joy, optimism, and very, very bubbly. 
She loved mac and cheese, drawing. She created thank you cards for her parents for taking her to church. She loved to perform, but was a tomboy, rollerblading, biking, loving the outdoor, climbing, swinging on swings with her brother. A Daisy Girl Scout with Troop 2349, she was a friend and loved selling Girl Scout cookies. And she was really good at it, too. Her record card from kindergarten has many more pluses than minuses. Her teacher could count on her to help out when she was a natural-born leader. Her teacher wrote on her report card that she, quote, is a pleasure to have in class. She's a confident, positive student who works hard on all assignments. She's a positive role model for the other students, end quote. John Binet was the student asked to escort sick classmates to the nurse. As her mom was undergoing experimental chemo, John Binet had a great understanding and empathy for the sick. John Belay was so much more than beauty pageants. Her teachers actually had no idea she was a beauty queen. Her laugh was infectious and occurred often. She found that silver lining in anything negative. And these memories of John Bonet are precious to John and Burke, though neither wonders about what she might have grown into or what she might be doing today. John Bonet is frozen in time, that wonderful, outgoing six-year-old. John and Burke, who still feel a profound sense of loss, are devoted to doing all they can to find her killers, interviews, looking at possible suspects, digging into terrible, painful memories. They want answers, and they want justice, not vengeance. John Andrew believes that the case has languished long enough in the hands of Boulder PD. Quote, it is past time to remove the case from the Boulder PD. This is about finding a sadistic child killer who has never been caught. We can't expect the Boulder police and the very same detectives who have been on the case for 25 years to do the right thing and honestly and aggressively investigate who might have killed John Binet. End quote. Oof. Today at Boulder PD, there are two officers working on the Ramsey case who joined the case when John Binet was killed 25 years ago. They are Detective Commander. Tom Trujillo, and Special Services Commander Ron Gossage. Trujillo signed on the case day one, being at the Ramsey residence through much of that first horrifying day. Gossage joined the case two days later and initially worked on the original DNA testing of the family that day. Since the case is technically still active, they won't comment. They work on it about once a week, depending on any tips that might come in. Paula Woodward, as well as others in law enforcement, question whether they should be on the case, given the inexplicable leaking that went on, resulting in framing John and Patsy Ramsey. All right, an example. Trujillo, he's listed as the investigator on the 1996 DNA report prepared for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. In this 1996 report, so this is from a day or so after the murders, the offense is identified as, quote, homicide, willful kill, dash family. End quote. The suspects listed are Patsy Ramsey and John Ramsey. This is a couple days into this. Paula includes this documentation in the book. Do I have faith in Trujillo? No, but he's in charge right now. I truly hope Trujillo and Gossage rise to the occasion now. Am I confident? Will the forensic genetic DNA lead to a killer? Will Boulder PD be honest about the results? We will learn the answers to these questions when they issue a new statement. So who are they looking for? 
All right. As part of my research, I read Injustice, While John Benet Ramsey Was Murdered by a Sadistic Psychopath, Not Her Parents, by Dr. Robert A. Whitson, who was with the Boulder PD as the on-call supervisor December 26, 1996. To be fair, I also read Boulder Detective Steve Thomas's book, John Benet, Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation, published in 2000. Given all I've learned from Paula's book, I recognize that Detective Thomas, who had zero homicide investigation experience when he worked on the Ramsey case, is one angry, frustrated person who cannot recognize his own blind spots. For example, he elucidates on and on about the Ramseys not granting interviews, which we now know is false, while Thomas reminds us that they have the right to remain silent under our judicial system, but this obviously means they're guilty. Totally alienating the parents, making them the people of interest, while expecting them to do everything you want, while leaking false information to pressure them into confessing, is truly one who is tone deaf. This is completely unrealistic. Thomas, who is totally emotional and unprofessional, angrily condemns them for lawyering up, which is more evidence that they are guilty in his mind. But these are rights we have, Detective Thomas to remain silent and to have an attorney. This isn't evidence to be used to justify your investigation. This is how our system works, that pesky constitution. John and Patsy can and should have protected themselves since they were being tried in the media with no corrections by Boulder PD. I can see how this went off the rails, convicting the Ramseys in the press. Thomas repeats the fiction about the case that Paul Woodward totally blows up in Unsolved. I cannot recommend his book. Robert Whitson's book is outstanding. He admits his flaws and he writes very clearly and succinctly with Lou Smith about the evidence in the case. But what was important to me is both Whitson and Thomas's accounts come from within the investigation as opposed to Paula Woodward's story which is objectively from outside looking in. And the investigation was botched far worse than you can ever imagine. A perfect store of incompetence, egos running amok, battling agencies, and groupthink clouding judgment. An additional piece of evidence that Whitson mentions is that there were red fibers found on the duct tape John Ramsey peels off his daughter's mouth in the wine cellar, tosses on top of the blanket, that was placed on John Binet. The duct tape was also handled by his friend, Fleet White. So unfortunately, the duct tape is really tainted evidence. Fact, Patsy Ramsey wore a red sweater on Christmas, so this red fiber can very well fall into the she killed John Binet column until one looks further. Yes, Patsy's sweater was red, but she also wore black. Zero black fibers are found on the duct tape. So where are the black fibers? None found. Something else. The Boulder PD collected the clothes John, Patsy, and Burke were wearing on December 26, 1996, over a year later. Oh, you want the sweater I wore when I murdered my daughter? Sure, it's right here in my closet. One sec. As no killer has ever said. If you killed your daughter, would you hold on to the clothes you wore while you were doing it? Come on, of course not. You toss it into a dumpster, the neighbor's trash, down a storm drain, but you don't hold on to it. 
Now, Dr. Whitson's book confirms much of what I was thinking and gave me more to consider. My theory, based on the evidence, I believe an intruder killed John Binet and that this is where the evidence leads, dismissing the headlines. Following the evidence, this is what I think happened on December 25th to 26th, 1996. Out to visit friends on Christmas, the Ramses arrive home 9, 9.30 p.m. It's been a long day. John Binet is asleep in the car, and John carries her up to bed. Patsy puts on long johns and tucks her in. John helps Burke put together a new toy, and he goes up to bed. John takes melatonin, joining Patsy in bed. They have an early day tomorrow. They're flying to see more family for the holidays. John Binet stirs, though, not quite settled into sleep, and wakes up a bit hungry. She knows it's late, so she sneaks downstairs to the kitchen, spots the pineapple and fruit on the counter, and picks out some to eat with her fingers. I mean, she's sick, so this works for her. That's why her fingerprints are not on the spoon, only Burke's and Patsy's. She wanders back to bed, and she goes to sleep. While the family was out, a monster who had seen John Binet before, fixated on her like a cat on a mouse, arrived. He'd previously toured the home during an open house and has fantasized about the Ramses ever since, John Binet in particular. He is a zero-sum thinker. If someone has something, it's because it's been taken away from him. Life is so unfair. He's envious of John Ramsey. John is a symbol, that rich fat cat. On a mission, he wants to hurt John Ramsey. He thinks John has it too good living his perfect life with his perfect wife in his perfect house, and he shows it off, rubbing his face in it. He hates John Ramsey and all he represents because he covets. He wants his piece of this perfect life, even if he has to destroy to possess it. He wants it for himself, confirmed more and more deeply as he wanders the empty house, seeing their wealth, opulence, joy, comfort, fueling his motivation more. He's kidnapping John Binet to punish John for his success and to get some of that money, a thought that is confirmed as he snoops and he sees this statement stub from John's bonus check on his office desk. He realizes he didn't ask for enough ransom in the note he wrote. He has time, so he updates the ransom note, now demanding $118,000, an easy amount to get because he knows it's in John's account. He writes the note on Patsy's pad with a Sharpie, discarding the first effort, the paper found with the, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Slash, end quote, and a second one as well, stuffing this into his coat pocket because the pages missing from the pad are never found. He addresses the note to John Ramsey, not to both parents, just to John, the object of his hate and jealousy. Though he tells himself this, it's not about the money, or he'd have asked for, you know, $10 million. His twisted psyche wants John Binet to ruin John's perfect, beautiful child, to possess her, control her, hurt her. He is a sadistic psychopath, a monster. He's in his late 20s, early 30s, an unsophisticated criminal who's living in his head in his fantasies. He's imagined this type of crime for years and he thinks he's well prepared to execute it tonight. He's social, he's good at superficial conversation, but nothing deep. School was a push-pull. He's intelligent, but a non-starter. 
and it's likely he suffered from undiagnosed learning disabilities. Just not getting it, he claimed he didn't care about studying. It wasn't important. It was boring and stupid. Punished for bad spelling as a kid, he didn't try to spell John Binet's name in the ransom note. This guy failed to launch, probably living near Boulder in some of the apartments northeast of the Ramses near the university. He may have gone into the military, needing structure and to learn discipline. He either had a lackluster few years there or was kicked out. He'd blame the military for this, of course. It's never his failure. He has parents, though I do have my doubts about this. I think if he did, they were distracted, working a lot, short-tempered, irritable, under pressure, possibly abusing substances. They just weren't there for him. They didn't care. They controlled the situation. He did not. I think it's likely he spent a great deal of time with his grandparents picking up their vocabulary, attache and fat cat. Early on, I was raised by my grandparents, and I definitely had that experience. I definitely picked up their vocabulary, their stories, their songs, and internalized them. So he may have had that same experience. His grandma, his grandma and gramps would regularly and annoyingly advise him on how to live his life better. He flips this. He'll tell people he's helping out his folks. They need him, not the other way around. He's a good son or grandson, you see. He reassures the grandparents that he's got this, a repeated false promise. He deserves success. The next get-rich-quick scheme will be amazing, you'll see. This guy has an unsatisfying job, thinks some kind of like drone repetitive work. When under pressure, he can crack, revealing a temper. Truth is, he's a fraud, hollow, empty, and entirely selfish. Boulder DA officer Trip DeMuth, who was silenced and removed from the investigation because he supported the intruder theory, reported that a Ramsey neighbor called the police to report someone trespassing in their yard, leaving cigarette butts behind. Another reported two suspicious vehicles, one on Christmas Eve and one on Christmas Day. Another neighbor told homicide investigator Lou Smith he'd seen a male walking around the Ramsey home on Christmas Day. I believe this was the killer. He surveyed the home, spotted the broken basement window that John Ramsey hadn't repaired yet. Through here, wearing brown gloves, he will leave brown fibers behind and he enters the house. He scuffed the wall climbing in, leaving a footprint on top of the suitcase. He also drags in debris and a piece of glass later found on top of the suitcase. He'd attended the open house Christmas tour. He wanders about, refamiliarizing himself with the house, with her room, with exits and staircases. This guy loves movies, watching many films about crime and kidnappings, fueling his fantasy of being a selfie criminal, of stealing a child, of stealing John Binet, and punishing John Ramsey his thinking obsessive. He'd seen Ransom, now in theaters, several times. He used the dialogue from these films, punctuating his own Ransom note, dialogue he's memorized his favorite parts of the movies. I agree with Dr. Whitson that he planned to put John Binet in the suitcase found under that basement window, the one later found with the duvet, pillow shams, and a Dr. Seuss book that John Binet loved inside. These items would comfort John Binet and keep her quiet. Now he waits. He anticipates. 
the Ramses arrive home. Silently hiding, he bides his time, his blood pounding with excitement, the dark side completely engulfing him, burning to unleash this evil plan, his eyes black. The house goes silent, and he waits. When he determines it's safe, he puts the ransom note on the spiral staircase's third step where Patsy will find it. He takes the shortest path to John Benet's room, up the spiral staircase, using a stun gun on the little girl to incapacitate her. She is his. He cannot resist, and he pulls off one glove to touch John Benet with his fingers, skin to skin. Eager, he flings her over his shoulder, shuts her bedroom door behind him, and whisks her light 45-pound or 21-kilo frame back down the central stairs, through the butler pantry, and down into the basement, all in the west wing of the home. He never disturbs the east side of the home, where everyone is sleeping one to two floors above. No one will hear anything, as Lou Smith determined through his audio testing. But a problem arises. He cannot maneuver the suitcase with John Benet inside out the broken basement window as planned. Later, fibers consistent with the clothing John Benet was wearing that night were found inside the suitcase. He stops in full predator mode, reckless and dangerous. Assessing. Assessing. Confident he's alone, he can do anything he wants to John Benet right here, and on impulse, decides to assault her now, abandoning the kidnap scheme. He carries her into the wine cellar, leaving a palm print on the cellar door, taking her to the remotest part of the home, leaving the high-tech footprint in the mold on the floor. He puts the glove back on and begins to abuse John Benet, who's awakened and screams three to five seconds, the scream heard by the neighbor across the street that reverberated up the ventilation grid to the outside, but cannot be heard two to three floors above by her sleeping family. He subdues her, duct-taking her mouth, leaving those brown glove fibers behind. She struggles and he uses the stun gun again against her cheek partially melting the adhesive tape over her mouth as her autopsy reports, her pain fueling his sexual arousal. He ties her up with the white cord. His control over her is complete. Looking around, he spies Patsy's paintbrush, breaking it into three pieces. He fashions a garage with the white cord, strangling John Benet repeatedly into unconsciousness, controlling her breathing, because this control over John Binet is a necessary part of this sick fantasy. Tiny moon-shaped marks align the strangulation fissure cutting into her neck, indicating John Binet struggled to loosen it at some point, fighting for her life, trying to stop him. He sexually abuses her. He doesn't rape her, as her autopsy report indicates. This behavior is not that unusual in pedophile cases, according to retired FBI agent John Douglas. Finally, the evil spent, elated, he pulls the ligature tightly, cutting off the blood supply to her brain while smashing her skull with his maglite simultaneously as her autopsy indicates. It created an eight and a half inch crack in her skull, bruising her brain. JonBenet dies and dies horribly. Done with her, he carelessly tosses the blanket over her and scurries out. He will take one piece of the broken paintbrush with him. A souvenir. His mag light was found on the kitchen table the next day. There is no way he or anyone else could write the ransom note after this terrible crime. 
not with the adrenaline coursing, his mind cruising in the stratosphere, primed, pumped, euphoric. Eager to get out, he exits quickly, either out the first floor, but the pantry door, possibly discarding a baseball bat, a weapon he planned to use if he'd been discovered by the family. This baseball bat did not belong to the Ramses and was found outside just beyond this door, which he likely left open according to crime scene photos and reports by witnesses. Or he went back out the broken basement window he'd entered through. There were alarm signs posted around the house, and he couldn't know for sure that the alarm was off, so he may have avoided the doors, but the evidence is mixed on this. I tend to lean he went out the butler pantry door, because why would he go back upstairs and leave the flashlight on the table? All right, either way, he vanishes into the dark, but leaving his DNA behind, unknown male number one. This is how I believe the crime was carried out by a demented sadist, one with a lack of impulse control. Well, who else would assault, torture, and murder a child with her family at home, you ask? It isn't unheard of. Look at the cases of BTK murdering Josephine Otero, age 11, after invading her home when her parents were present, all wound up being killed. Or Polly Class, age 12, having a slumber party with two friends at home with mom upstairs, was abducted and killed by Richard Allen Davis. Another Colorado case, 13-year-old Heather Dawn Church, babysitting her five-year-old brother, was abducted. Her parents came under suspicion like the Ramseys. This was the case Lou Schmidt solved, finding overlooked latent fingerprints on the windowsill that matched sexual predator Robert Brown. There are many more examples of children abducted when their families were home and later killed. Too many. Narcissistic, shallow, with no conscience or empathy, his selfish needs were the only important thing driving him that night. His behavior is a mix of organized and disorganized, taking evidence with him, the duct tape, the stun gun, the white cord, the piece of paintbrush, and the missing pages from the Patsy Ramsey notepad. Yet, he leaves behind the garrote, the broken piece of paintbrush, the mag light, the baseball bat. This is not a perfect crime, and it can be solved. And I need a second, murder bookies. Okay, I needed a little break there. All right, regarding the Ramsey case, one significant factor not mentioned thus far. No similar crimes occurred before or after John Benet's murder. Part of the reason that Boulder PD focused on the parents. Well, my first thought was that's probably because his plan fell apart. He thought he had this thing down cold, and he didn't. So he might be gun-shy to try it again, given the extreme publicity and scrutiny. But wait, there was a similar crime in September 1997. A ski-masked intruder broke into a second-floor home in Boulder nine months after John Benet was killed. He sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl interrupted when her mother charged into the room, causing him to flee out an open window. He broke in, attacked her in her second floor room with her parents' home, very similar to the Ramsey situation, and no suspect was identified in this case. Woodward cites the example of the 1932 Lindbergh kidnapping with no similar crime prior and none after. Does this mean that Colonel and Mrs. Lindbergh murdered their son? No, no, no. But believe me, there are conspiracy theories that say they did. 
And again, I look to the evidence, not conjecture. In the 1920s and 30s, Charles A. Lindbergh was a famous American aviator and celebrity, the first to fly his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, nonstop and solo across the Atlantic on May 20th, 1927. He became an American hero, beloved, and his every movement was covered in newspapers, including his marriage to New Jersey girl Anne Morrow in 1929. Like the Ramses, the Lindberghs were fat cats. They had it all, fame, fortune, success, family. Then tragedy struck on March 1st, 1932, at 9 p.m. in their mansion in Hopewell, New Jersey, then under renovation, their 20-month-old son, Charles Lindbergh Jr., was kidnapped from the second-floor nursery while his family and servants were all home. His nurse, Betty Gow, discovered little Charles was missing around 10 p.m., notifying the Lindberghs. Charles Lindbergh recalled hearing a thud earlier that evening, but he'd ignored it. A ransom note demanding $50,000 was attached to the nursery window. The Hopewell PD and the New Jersey State Police, which was only founded in 1921, were notified. The evidence. Traces of mud were found on the floor of the nursery. Soggy footprints impossible to measure were found under the nursery window. A vital piece of evidence was the homemade ladder used to climb up to the nursery window. Assembled in three sections, the ladder broke where two sections had joined and a rung split, likely on descent. Was this the thud noise Charles Lindbergh heard? There were no bloodstains in or about the nursery, nor were there any fingerprints. They'd worn gloves. All employees who worked at the Lindbergh estate were questioned and investigated. Meanwhile, Charles Lindbergh asked friends to try to communicate with the kidnappers, who promptly went out and made widespread appeals to negotiate for the return of the toddler via newspaper ads. Even criminals like Al Capone tried to reach out to the kidnappers. March 6, 1932, the second ransom note arrived, postmarked Brooklyn, New York, and it increased the ransom amount to $70,000. At the governor's request, law enforcement agencies and government officials conferenced in Trenton to hash out various theories and ideas. The Lindberghs also hired private investigators to assist. So every resource is being employed to try and sort this out and find or get little Charles returned. A third ransom note was received on March 8th, indicating that the parents should put ads in the newspaper to communicate. On the same date, retired principal, Dr. John Francis Condon of the Bronx in New York City, published an ad in the Bronx Home News offering to act as an intermediary. The next ransom note accepted Dr. Condon as a go-between with the Lindberghs agreeing. So this guy is local in the Bronx, Brooklyn, New York area there. The new ransom notes that would follow were authenticated by a pattern of interlocking circles that matched those on the original ransom note. So we know these follow-up ransom notes are legit. The Lindberghs gave Dr. Condon $70,000 in cash and immediately started negotiation for payments through ads using the code name JAFC for Condon's initials, J-F-C, JAFC. On the evening of March 12th, yet another ransom note was delivered to Dr. Condon by taxi driver Joseph Perone. Perone had received it from some unidentified stranger. The note directed them to another that was found beneath a stone in a vacant stand near a subway station. 
Lots of smoke and mirrors going on here. As instructed in the note, Dr. Condon went to Woodlawn Cemetery and met a man who called himself John with air quotes. While saying the baby was safe, John asked some frightening questions. Quote, would I burn if the baby were dead? Would I burn if I did not kill it? End quote. Notice he doesn't use, I did not kill him. John is clearly distancing himself from this toddler. Condon reported that John agreed to provide evidence that the toddler was alive and that he had him. By the way, thank you kidnappers for all the written ransom evidence, drawing a strong parallel with the Ramsey case 60 years in the future. March 16th, Condon met once more with the mysterious John who gave him the little boy's sleeper, which was confirmed by the Lindberghs as belonging to their son. All right, this slow note-by-note torture had to be terrible for the Lindberghs, but at least the kidnapper was communicating with them. I just can't imagine the sheer terror and the worry. Four weeks into the kidnapping, March 29th, nurse Betty Gow found the baby's thumb guard near the entrance of the estate, and he had been wearing it when he was kidnapped. Stops the baby from sucking the thumb. Now a full month after little Charles was taken, came another note telling Dr. Condon to have the money ready for the next evening. The next day, a different taxi driver delivered another note, directing Condon to yet another note under a stone in front of a greenhouse in the Bronx. That evening, Condon, with Charles Lindbergh joining him, met with, air quotes John, at the cemetery again. Condon paid him the ransom in exchange for the 13th note containing instructions that little Charles could be found on a boat named Nellie, near Martha's Vineyard. The next day, Lindbergh flew a seaplane all over the area with Coast Guard cutters and Navy destroyers as the search for the baby commenced. But no boat named Nellie was ever found. The upside was that Dr. Condon was positive that he would recognize John if ever given the chance. Then everything changed. To the horror and grief of the Lindberghs, to the heartbreak of the whole nation and world, on May 12, 1932, the body of the kidnapped baby was accidentally found by a truck driver, William Allen, about five miles from the Lindbergh estate in Mercer County, New Jersey. The body was partially buried and badly decomposed, and his head was crushed. It was Charles Lindbergh, Jr., the coroner examination showed the child had likely died shortly after he was taken and that the death was caused by a blow to the head. It may have been accidental when the latter rung cracked, causing the blow to the baby's head. While the dozen ransom notes were being delivered, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, would provide all and any assistance, even though they had no federal jurisdiction at this time. The New Jersey State Police announced that there was now a $25,000 reward for information resulting in the apprehension and conviction of the kidnappers. Now, guys, this is a lot of money during the Great Depression when unemployment is hovering around 25%. In May, the FBI in New York put out an alert on banks to watch for ransom money. 80% of it had been paid in gold certificates, a very distinctive, rare printed money. After the ransom had been paid, gold certificates were recalled back to the U.S. Treasury. So anyone in the New York City area 
using gold certificates to pay for stuff, we're probably using ransom money. On June 10th, 1932, Violet Sharp, a maid at the home of Anne Morrow Lindbergh's mother, Mrs. Dwight Morrow, who had been under investigation by law enforcement, committed suicide by swallowing poison just before she was to be re-questioned. Wildly suspicious, Violet's movements on the night of March 1st, 1932 were carefully investigated and it was soon determined that she had no connection with the abduction. This was just coincidence. Early in 1933, the FBI reminded all New York City banks and their branches to keep an extremely close watch for the ransom gold certificates and provided serial numbers of the ransom bills. They then contacted each individual employee handling currency in banks, clearinghouses, grocery stores, insurance companies, gasoline stations, airports, department stores, post office, and even telegraph companies. And reports of passing ransom bills came into the FBI and police, but not with enough information to move the case ahead. So this is a huge investigation with massive publicity. And as an unfortunate consequence, there was a massive number of tips being received from very well-meaning people, but also a deluge of letters written by demented persons, publicity seekers, and frauds. But regardless, every tip had to be examined because one might have that bit of information that is essential and breaks the case. The 13 ransom notes were analyzed by handwriting experts who concluded the writer was of German nationality but had been in the U.S. for some time. For example, the Nellie Boat was spelled B-O-A-D, a phonetic German accented pronunciation. Dr. Condon described John as Scandinavian, and he spent hours reviewing numerous mugshots of possible suspects and known criminals. With the FBI, Condon and taxi driver Joseph Perone helped create a composite sketch of John. Dr. Condon also produced a transcript of all conversations that he'd had with John. During March 1934, they used a phonograph to record Dr. Condon imitating the pronunciation and dialect of the kidnapper with the goal of capturing nationality, education, mentality, and character. The homemade ladder was another critical piece of evidence. By crudely built, it was built nonetheless by someone familiar with woodworking. It came apart in three pieces for ease of assembly and transportation. In early 1933, Arthur Kohler of the Forest Service of the Department of Agriculture, an expert in wooden lumber, was called in. Kohler cautiously took the ladder apart, painstakingly identifying the types of wood used and examined tool marks. He also looked at the pattern made by nail holes. A new clue emerged. It appeared that some of the wood had been used before, likely in indoor construction, and his report on this would alter the case forever. On May 2nd, 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered deposits of almost $3,000 in Lindbergh gold certificates. Despite extensive investigation, this depositor was never located. Nothing happened again for seven months until August, September 1934. Neighborhood banks discovered more and more ransom bills, backtracking 
getting closer and closer to the original point of origin from where they were passed. This person who passed the gold certificates was a man whose description fit that of John as described by Dr. Condon. He seemed to frequent many local corner produce stores. September 19, 1934, came the long-awaited break in the case. At 1.20 p.m., an alert manager of the New York Corn Exchange Bank and Trust called the FBI Bureau, telling him that a $10 gold certificate was discovered by one of the bank tellers. Back four days earlier, an alert attendant at a gas station received a gold certificate as payment from a man whose description fit the composite sketch. The attendant, being suspicious of the gold certificate, recorded on the bill the license number of the car, and this license number was issued to Bruno Richard Hoffman of 1279 East 222nd Street, Bronx, New York. Game on. Law enforcement surveilled Hoffman's house intently. At approximately 9 a.m. on September 19, 1934, an individual closely fitting the description of John, who also bore resemblance to the composite sketch and matched the description of the gas fire, left his house and got into his car parked nearby. He was promptly taken into custody. He was Bruno Richard Hoffman, a German carpenter who had been in the country for approximately 11 years. A $20 gold ransom certificate was found in his wallet. In his house were found a pair of shoes which had been purchased with a $20 ransom bill on September 8, 1934. Hoffman admitted several other purchases had been made with ransom certificates. Hoffman was positively identified by taxi driver Joseph Perone, from whom he had received the fifth ransom note which he delivered to Dr. Condon. Dr. Condon identified Bruno Richard Hoffman as John, whom he would, had met and gave the ransom money to. So both eyewitnesses who actually saw the kidnapper say, yep, this is the guy. Now, had the police pressured them? Well, that accusation has been made and some say yes and some say no. But the next day, ransom certificates in excess of $13,000 were found hidden in Hoffman's garage. His Dodge sedan car matched the description of the car seen near the Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping. More evidence. With 13 ransom notes, handwriting samples from Hoffman were processed at the FBI labs in D.C. There were a number of remarkable similarities between the notes and the Hoffman samples, and they believed that he was the author. Well, taking all of this together, it looks pretty damning, but what else do they have? Hoffman's background is investigated. He was a 35-year-old man, native of Saxony, Germany, where he had a criminal record for robbery doing time in prison. Now, to be fair, this was in the immediate aftermath of World War I, where Germany was decimated with skyrocketing unemployment and people literally starving to death. So under such circumstances, I can see someone stealing. In 1923, Hoffman stowed away aboard the SS Hanover, arriving in New York City on July 13th, where he was arrested and deported immediately. After another failed entry attempt, Hoffman successfully entered the United States in November 1923, aboard the George Washington. Two years later, Hoffman, a carpenter, married Anna Schlaufer, a New York City waitress. 
After the March 1st, 1932 kidnapping, Hoffman began to trade in stocks, never holding an actual job again. And in 1933, Anna and Bruno welcomed son Manfred. In September 1934, Bruno Richard Hoffman was indicted on charges of extortion. The murder charge came in October. On January 3rd, 1935, in the Flemington, New Jersey courthouse, the trial began, lasting five weeks, led by prosecutor David Willens. The case was circumstantial. No one saw him kidnap or kill little Charles Jr. Was the evidence compelling? Well, let's see. Colonel Charles Lindbergh testified that Hoffman's voice was the voice he'd heard in the cemetery. Condon did the same. Evidence-wise, the tool marks on the ladder matched tools owned by Hoffman, who as a carpenter had the knowledge to build it. More damning, the wood grains in the lumber used to construct the third section of the ladder matched those in the wood flooring of Hoffman's attic. Lumber expert Charles Kohler told law enforcement that the ladder wood appeared to have been used inside previously, so this matches with boards being taken from Hoffman's attic. And Dr. Condon's phone number and address were found written on a doorframe inside Hoffman's closet. That's a weird place to take notes, don't you think? Unless you wanted to hide some information? Hmm. Hoffman's defense was led by 52-year-old Ed Wiley and was grounded in Hoffman's insistence that he knew nothing of the kidnapping. Bruno swore he'd been given a box to hold by a friend of his, Isidore Fish, right before Fish sailed back to Germany, where he died of tuberculosis a few months later. Once Fish died, Hoffman opened the box he'd been given, seeing it held a lot of money, the gold certificates. Since Fish owed Bruno money, he kept it. Sadly for Bruno Hoffman, there is no evidence to support this story with Fish dead. Fish's siblings and his nurse traveled to New Jersey from Germany to testify at Hoffman's trial. They testified that Fish could not afford medical treatment in his final months, having died a pauper. I have to think if Fish was seriously ill, then he'd have used the ransom money to see a doctor and get treatment. But that just makes sense to me. I'm just guessing. Riley challenged prosecution witnesses, calling in a number of his own, including Anna Hoffman, who swore her husband was with her the night little Charles had been taken. On February 13, 1935, the jury reached a verdict. Hoffman was guilty of murder in the first degree. The sentence? Death. The defense appealed. So to be brief, on October 1935, the Supreme Court of the state of New Jersey upheld the verdict. Hoffman appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court which was denied on December 9, 1935. Bruno Richard Hoffman was electrocuted on April 3, 1936 at 8.47 p.m. Now, there is controversy about this verdict, and some believe Bruno Richard Hoffman was innocent, others that he was not working alone, and that others escaped justice. I have to wonder what happened to the rest of the ransom money and how they knew it was the baby's nursery window. Mrs. Anna Hoffman never gave up trying to exonerate her husband. In 1981, due to her FOIA request, then New Jersey Governor Brendan Byrne unsealed the New Jersey State Police Lindbergh case files after 45 years. 
and his attorney, Robert Bryan, claimed that the FBI and New Jersey State Police had hidden a witness, Frida von Valta, who would have testified that she rode the subway home with Hoffman the night the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped. The woman said that Hoffman stopped to give her directions. Brian also pointed out that fingerprints from the case were found in 1985, creating a great stir, but these belonged to little Charles Lindbergh Jr., not the perpetrator. In 1986, Brian and Anna Hoffman brought a $100 million wrongful death suit against the state of New Jersey. Brian argued that the two-year statute of limitations for wrongful death didn't apply in this case because it wasn't until 1981 that Anna had access to the 34,000 pages. The justices refused to hear her appeal, dismissing it. While Brian certainly did try every possible tactic, the supportive people around Anna began to suspect she was being manipulated to keep Brian's name in the limelight rather than Brian truly working for Anna and her crusade to clear her husband. In October of 1991, Brian took Anna Hoffman back to Flemington, New Jersey, to the courthouse where Bruno's trial took place, somewhere Anna had said she would never, ever return to, to meet a 22-year-old actress playing her in a high school drama teacher's production on the trial. As reported in the Chicago Tribune, Brian said that Anna, quote, wanted to come back to where it all began, end quote, and that this was her idea. Weeks later, he conceded that this was his idea, not honest, in order to keep applying pressure to look into the case. A lifelong friend of Anna's, former Geardin, New Jersey councilwoman, Tony Rafferty, objected, saying, quote, I strongly question the wisdom and motive of putting an actress next to this lady, making what I consider a farce of a presentation that accomplished absolutely nothing, end quote. Anna died a few years later, at 95 years old, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dying of heart failure, although her heart broke long ago. What do I think? Well, I am always open to looking at facts again, but I cannot get past the lumber used to make the ladder perfectly matching, grain to grain, the wood in Hoffman's attic. This is indisputable. And this is a crime photo that is on my blog. You can see it for yourself. This unequivocally puts Bruno squarely in the kidnapping, whether there were others involved or not. I would have voted guilty on that jury. I just cannot get past that evidence. It was from his attic. But I admire Anna's devotion to her husband. That is true love, and I certainly pray that she is at peace. One more important development from the Lindbergh case. The law changed forever, directly impacting the John Binney Ramsey case. Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act, known as the Lindbergh Law, on June 22, 1932, the day that would have been little Charles's second birthday. The Lindbergh Kidnap Law made kidnapping a federal crime and stipulated that such offense could be punishable by death. This allowed the FBI to assist with the initial report in the kidnapping of John Binet. And I really hope Boulder PD goes through with the new touch DNA testing that will hopefully produce some kind of conclusive result. Really praying on this one because John Binet's sadistic killer is still out there. Just like Charles and Ann Lindbergh, John Ramsey remains the father of a murdered child. He told Paula, quote, 
for the most part, you don't get over it. You move on. A mother who lost a child said to me, I have a hole in my heart that won't heal. And that's a good way to put it. After John Bonet was murdered, my will to live was definitely challenged. It was agony, that loss and pain. You try to make new memories, and you do make new memories. And those are good to fall back on and remember, but you don't get over it. End quote. Paula Woodward's book ends with pages and pages of photographs of John Bonet, with friends, family, at events, enjoying all that was good in her life. And it took some time for my tears to stop. The Lindbergh kidnapping is another crime that transfixed America and the world through the media. Both the Lindbergh and Ramsey cases are terrifying, heartbreaking, and although 64 years apart, are remembered and debated to this day. An evildoer taking and killing beautiful young children at the beginning of their lives, devastated parents, with the media engaged in overdrive covering the crime of the century. One with a competent investigation that broke the case a few years later versus a completely incompetent police investigation that has done serious damage to finding the answers and justice for 25 years. Both tear out our hearts and we ask why. Paula Woodwork, however, has set the record straight. Please read her book, Murder Bookies. And that concludes episode 39, Second Cast, Crime of the Century, Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey case 25 years later by Paula Woodward. Oh, that was a tough one. Okay. And my new book selection is Bone Deep by Charles Bockworth Jr. and Joel L. Schwartz on the Betsy Faria murder case and the subject of a new NBC limited series, The Thing About Pam, starring Renee Zellweger, which is out in March of 2022. And I thought I was frustrated with unsolved. Your sense of justice will be tested to the extreme. And you must simply read this or just listen to the next trilogy. You know how much I love details. This is full of details. So back on December 27, 2011, Russell Farrier returned to his Troy, Missouri home after his weekly gaming night with his friends to a grisly scene. His wife, Betsy, lay dead, knife lodged in her neck. First responders conclude that Betsy was dead for hours when Rush discovered her. Yes, incredibly, police and prosecutor ignore the evidence. But prominent defense attorney Joel J. Schwartz quickly identified the real killer. Bone Deep presents a perfect storm of missteps that led to an innocent man's conviction, exposing what can happen when police, prosecutor, judge, and jury all fail in their duty to protect the innocent and let a killer get away with murder. Can't wait to do this one. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee. Yep, I'm on Buy Me a Coffee. Uh, There's a link on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Both will really help me grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Follow me or subscribe to my show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let my episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material, snack and drink information for Unsolved, the John Benet Ramsey murder case 25 years later, is found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena, 
Lyrics by Otto Harbach. <laughs> 